Dr. Shannon Sovendahl with Match on a Fire, Medicine and More podcast. Let the healing begin. Hi, I'm Dr. Shannon Sovendahl. I'm sitting with my wife, Stephanie Sovendahl. Good morning. Thanks for tuning in. She did say good morning. It's early in the morning for us, so sorry if we sound a little gruff. It might make us sound even better. I had uh, someone, a friend of mine came to me and said that my voice sounded a little funny on the podcast, but your voice sounded great. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Dr. Rosa, for that. Thank you, Dr. Rosa. He said, your settings are probably off compared to hers. And I said, <laughs> I think it's that she's a young, pretty woman and I'm an old man. That's oh. probably the difference in the nice voice oh. versus bad voice. So anyway, hey, if you guys wouldn't mind, you can head over to the website, drshannonsovendahl.com slash podcast. Put in your email address. We can update you when new podcasts are coming out or when we have new events happening. So yeah, let's move on to the podcast today. So today we're going to talk about epinephrine because it's so exciting. It's a hot topic right now. Love epinephrine. The thing about epinephrine is everyone just assumes that you know everything about epinephrine because we've had it forever. But then when you start to get into it, you're like, wow, there's a lot of things to be concerned about with epinephrine, right? I kind of feel like it's like our uh, backboards. Like we just did it the same way forever without really looking at it and thinking about the why. And I think now this is kind of like the hot topic of backboards is we're finally starting to look at epi and say, well, it does a lot of good things. We know it does a lot of good things, but is it, you know, as great as we thought it was? Do we need to reevaluate its use? Yeah. We talked about this in one of the earlier podcasts about looking at things differently. And I talked about the world being upside down and kind of reorienting yourself. And this is one of those times where you just say, Hey, let me step back and kind of look at all the stuff about epinephrine and see if I'm doing the right thing. So we'll give you a little background on the epinephrine and then talk about a recent study that came out that everyone's been talking about. And then what does that mean to our practice? So that's essentially what we're going to cover today. Background on epinephrine, you know, we all know that's adrenaline. That's made by our bodies endogenously. It kind of contributes to our fight or flight mechanism, meaning that when the bear is chasing us and we need to get revved up, we need our heart rate to go up. We need our skeletal muscle to dilate. We need to be able to run fast to get away from that bear. And that's really what epinephrine does. It's this uh, stimulant for our body. If you remember back in school, you had the different receptors that we worry about. So we'll just go through this quick. We have alpha-1, alpha-2, beta-1, beta-2. Those are the ones we'll talk about with epinephrine. The alpha-1 causes smooth muscle constriction in the arterioles. So that can kind of increase the diastolic blood pressure that you have in your aorta. The beta-1 causes increased heart rate, increased contractility. So that's going to help us get away from that bear. So when we're talking about epinephrine and we think about, you know, why are we giving this medicine? We give it in anaphylaxis, we give it in cardiac arrest, and really we're trying to get that fight or flight syndrome. We're trying to give it externally as a medication rather than having the human body make it endogenously. And for people who are more simple-minded, which I'm your girl for that, the way I remember the receptor sites is beta-1, one one heart, beta-2, two two lungs. So beta-1 is your, the receptors are in your heart, beta-2, receptors are in your lungs. So beta-1, one one heart, beta-2, two two lungs. That's nice. Just the way it. I simplify things. Let's talk briefly about the concentration of epinephrine. Epinephrine comes in a few different forms. And depending on the condition that the patient has, I got to choose what concentration I want to use. For example, if a patient has anaphylaxis and I'm going to give the epinephrine sub-Q, I want to use the high-dose epinephrine, which is the 1 to 1,000 epinephrine. If I'm giving patient epinephrine in cardiac arrest through their IV, I use the 1 to 10,000 epinephrine. And if I'm going to do push-dose epinephrine, I'm going to give 1 to 100,000. What does that mean? If I, if I give you a pause here for a second, think to yourself, what does it mean when I say 1 to 1,000 or 1 to 10,000 epi? What am I asking for? This is an example of kind of sitting back and thinking about things because 
you know, when I actually think about it, I was like, wait, what exactly does that mean? What does it mean when I say one to 1,000? So what we're talking about here, when we say one to 1,000, we're saying one gram in 1,000 milliliters. That is the concentration of that epinephrine. So if I want to reduce this down, because I want to figure out how much epinephrine I'm giving in a milliliter, because that's really kind of what I'm pushing or what I'm going to utilize if, I, if I'm kind of giving this in incremental doses. So I put one gram in 1,000 milliliters. That is equal to 1,000 milligrams in 1,000 milliliters, right? I just converted grams to milligrams. If I want to get rid of that and reduce this down, I got to divide both sides of the equation by 1,000. If I do that, I get one milligram in one milliliter. In talking in the doses that we actually give, let's convert that to micrograms. So one milligram is actually 1,000 micrograms per milliliter. That is my one to 1,000 epi. Let's do this same drill again real quick for the one to 10,000. So one gram in 10,000 milliliters. That's 1,000 milligrams in 10,000 milliliters. Let's reduce this equation down so I divide both sides by 1,000. If I do that, I get one milligram in 10 milliliters. But I want to know what I get in one milliliter. So I got to divide again by 10. So now I have 0.1 milligrams in one milliliter. If we convert that to micrograms, I'm going to have 100 micrograms per milliliter. That is my 1 to 10,000 epi. And I'll just touch briefly on this. If we're going to do push dose pressors, we're diluting it again by another factor of 10. So we're going to have 1 gram in 100,000 milliliters. Let's reduce that equation down. We get 1,000 milligrams in 100,000 milliliters. Divide by 1,000, 1 milligram in 100 milliliters. Let's reduce this down to 1 milliliter. So I got to divide by 100, and I get 0.01 milligrams in 1 milliliter. That is equal to 10 micrograms per milliliter. So that's what we're talking about when we're talking about push dose pressors. And furthermore, on that 1 to 100,000, I always like to preface it with if your agency isn't carrying this or doing this yet, I really think this is a, a great option for your agency. I'm just a huge fan because if you ask Shannon, let's ask Shannon. Do you think I'm a micromanager, Shannon? You're a micromanager, yes. (laughs) So because of that, I love the one, the 100,000. I love push dose because you can very easily micromanage it. I furthermore like it with kiddos because you cannot all, you know, it keeps you from fluid overloading your kiddos as well. So if we're doing vasopressor infusions on kids and you open your vasopressor infusion up, you also really need to be mindful of that fluid, which not all of us are that great at. So if we do that push dose presser with the kiddos, it's just, once again, you cut out that risk of fluid overloading while you're doing your vasopressor infusion. So you can just do one. We, we mix our one to 100,000 and we do one milliliter every minute, which gives us 10 mics a minute. That gives us just straight epinephrine, not mixed with fluid. So we don't over fluid resuscitate our kiddos. So that's just a, a thought too. I'm once again, micromanager. I like just having those small little aliquots of epi that I can micromanage. So sorry for that little digression there, Shannon. So I think doing push dose presser, hopefully this doesn't disappoint you. This is not a lecture on push dose presser. We could probably do that later. If you want to send us a message, we certainly can go into this deeper if you want to. So shoot us an email or something, but we'll just keep on with epinephrine and cardiac arrest really is what we're focusing on today. So what are the benefits of epinephrine and cardiac arrest? I mean, why would you give epinephrine in cardiac arrest? Again, sitting back and thinking, what is the benefit of this? Well, some of the benefits are you get constriction of the arterioles, which increases the aortic diastolic pressure, which is what we want, right? When we have diastolic pressure increase, that better perfuses the coronary arteries to the heart. 
So I want that high diastolic pressure to perfuse the heart when it's having problems. If I'm in cardiac arrest, I want the heart to get oxygen, right? One of the cons of epinephrine and cardiac arrest though is I'm getting beta stimulation, right? So I'm going to increase my contractility, my heart rate, which increases oxygen consumption in the cardiac muscle, which can cause me a problem when I'm having a cardiac arrest. So we can kind of think about this theoretically on both sides of what epinephrine does with these different receptors in cardiac arrest. So if you go into the data, which is always a little bit tedious for me, I don't like reading data, but you kind of have to do it. And you go look at the data for cardiac arrest, it brings us to the reason we're kind of sitting here today, which is the Paramedic 2 trial. And that's a New England Journal article that came out in 2018 that talked about pre-hospital epinephrine. And we're going to get into that kind of uh, more in depth after we go through these other articles. So don't worry, we're going to come back to that one. There's a lot of other data out there, though, on cardiac arrest and epinephrine. Specifically in 2011, the Resuscitation Journal did a study with patients out of hospital cardiac arrest that were randomized to get either epinephrine or placebo, and they were more likely to have ROSC and survive to hospital admission, but there was no significant improvement to survival at hospital discharge, and we'll kind of see a theme here. In 2019, there was a meta-analysis done by resuscitation that looked at that New England journal that we're going to talk about in a minute, and then this trial from 2011, and what this meta-analysis found was there was no significant improvement in survival to hospital discharge. Which again, when we talk about all these things, and I keep on harping on this point, our whole purpose really in life in EMS is to get the patient back home. So they have their moment of impact, which is either a car accident or a heart attack or something like that. We want to get them back to their families functional. And so really, that is a key endpoint for me because I want the patient not to get to the hospital or not to get to the ICU. I want them to get home to their family. And that's what we're looking at with this you know, neurologically intact hospital discharge data. It's not a new thing for us to question whether epinephrine is beneficial in cardiac arrest. This new trial in the New England Journal really kind of drove the point home, but there were previous articles that said, hey, this might not be the best thing for our patients. A, a JAMA article in 2012 was a prospective observational study, and they found that they got greater ROSC in the epinephrine group versus placebo, but this didn't translate into improved outcome. And again, that's really what we're looking at. In 2012, the Journal of American College of Cardiologists also had similar results. They found that patients who got epinephrine and out-of-hospital cardiac arrest had increased ROSC, but their chance of survival was actually lower than the group that didn't get epinephrine. So they were having you know, a worse outcome than what we're even talking about, not getting home to their family. And then finally, I'll just touch on a, a British Medical Journal in 2016. They looked at early administration of epinephrine within two minutes following VFib and VTAC. And they found that that may be detrimental to a patient. So when a patient that's having VFib or VTAC and they get epinephrine, they might be less likely to go home to their family. So all this stuff causes us a little pause, you know, when we're thinking about this. I do like this Paramedic 2 trial, so I'm going to turn it over to Steph because she recently did a presentation on this. And I think she kind of uh, summarizes it and hones it in real well. But it's a great trial. If you haven't read this New England Journal article, then you should go read it if you're a pre-hospital provider. This is a great article for us. All right. So the paramedic two trial, I am just going to hit highlights. I always encourage you guys to go and, you know, do a lot of investigation on your own, do some of this research on your own. This is, you know, my understanding from the, the research I've done. Um, and once again, just today, we're only going to hit the highlights of this. There's a lot more that's going to be left unsaid today. But uh, really what happened with this study, I think, is it raised more questions and answers. You know, it gave us a really good idea of, I think, what maybe isn't the right thing, but it left us with questions of, well, then what is the right thing with epi? So I love how studies always have acronyms, you know, for their titles. 
And the, the paramedic too is, is like, it's amazing. It's, they got it's a world class <laughs> acronym, right? They got paramedic two. paramedic two. The study stands for pre-hospital assessment of role of adrenaline, measuring the effectiveness of drug administration in cardiac arrest. They actually got to spell paramedic with their study title. And I have a funny story from residency, just to digress that uh, Matt Jasandi was our chief resident and uh, maybe I can get him to listen to the podcast one time, but he was doing a trial at the equestrian center at Stanford. So they have a big equestrian center there. And he was looking at horse injuries or horse caused injuries in this trial. And he had the title on his study was the Stanford horse injury trial. And he almost got it approved, meaning he almost got the shit trial approved as the acronym for his study. And I thought that was really funny. So props out to him. Ultimately didn't go through, but. Uh, Shannon, you also have a really good acronym card for pediatrics, don't you? I I do. That is true. (laughs) Yeah, it's a bit embarrassing, but it's true. Can we say it on your window? (laughs) Someone told me that I, that they thought I swore too much on here. So this, this will probably add, add to that. I apologize, but I do carry a pediatric card. I made this a long time ago. And if I was as smart as Dr. Ann Tevye, I probably would have tried to market it. <laughs> but instead, I just carry it in my pocket. But I, I do have a name for it. So I made this card and I was going to use it as a little promotional thing for the hospital. So I needed a title for my pediatric cardiac arrest card, which has the doses on it. And so I was laying in bed one night and I popped up from sleep, remembering or coming up with the name of this card. And I came up with fast use calculation in kids for medical emergencies. So that's a fuck me card, essentially, right? And I sent it off to the printer for the hospital and they actually approved it and they were going to print it. And then I realized that I might lose my job if they actually printed this card with the fast use calculation in kids for medical emergencies with the hospital name on it. So I called them and I asked them to change it to children. So fast use calculation in children for medical emergencies. So it wasn't quite as obvious. Yeah. If you guys want these cards, you can certainly just go to uh, our email address and I can send you a card. They're great. All right. We digress. Sorry. Well, back to the New England Journal Paramedic 2 Back to the Paramedic 2 trial. It is amazing, though, that they got that paramedic acronym in there for this trial, which is rad. Once again, highlights. So this study enrolled just over 8,000 patients into the study. Pretty even split down the middle of the group, which half of the group, about 4,000, received placebo. And the other half received epi. And our normal, you know, what we consider normal, I think here as well, if the one milligram every three to five minute increments. Uh, So really similar to what we're doing here. Uh, Didn't really actually note much, many differences to what we do here. So once again, half of this group, just over 4,000 got placebo, half of this group, the other half, excuse me, got epi as we do it here. Few little interesting things. 65% of the population enrolled in this study were male. The average age was 69. This fact, I want you guys to kind of chew on and think about for a minute, but in this study, six out of 10 received CPR prior to EMS arrival. I think that is a big thing that we all should be looking at in our agencies and trying to get better at. Do you think that's a good six out of 10 is good or do you think we should be doing better than that? I think six out of 10 is is actually good. I think that we could do better than that. Once again, I think this is a focus that a lot of agencies are right now trying to focus on. Uh, local agency I know near us is seven out of 10. They're at 70% hands on the chest. So I think this is pretty average for most places, but I think we could, this is an area we could all work on. Yeah, this is all about community resiliency, right? And so Huge. having your community be able to be the first responder is amazing. Yeah, that's the big thing I want to emphasize is this six out of 10. So we'll, we'll kind of come back to that here in a second. 
the last kind of big thing in this study um, that I'm going to talk about is the average dose that was given to the patients in the epi group was five milligrams, which I think is, you know, before people are starting making these changes, I think that's a really realistic number uh, for what we do here. I know I've been on cardiac arrest where we give up to eight or nine rounds pre-hospitally of epinephrine. So I think five, this is once again, five milligrams in the cardiac arrest for the epi group is about what they received. And I think Steph, you know, just to clarify, Steph's talking about essentially rounds of ACLS. Like when you said I did four rounds, you get four doses of epinephrine. So that's the total number that they're giving. Yep. So that is, I just want you guys to keep that number in mind because that is the number now that we know is kind of in question. And that's what a lot of agencies have been trying to figure out then what is the best thing. So one of the things also in the study is that they noted in the epi group, 36% achieved ROSC, where in the placebo group, 11% achieved ROSC, which is very interesting, right? That's one of the things that we always look for is, is ROSC. It's a, the things that we're high-fiving about, feeling good about clicking that button on our PCR at the end to say, hey, ROSC achieved. As we're going to talk here, not always what our end goal is. So 36% in the epi group, 11 in the placebo. So right away, we're like, great, epi's doing it. It's doing what we want it to do. But then we started looking at outcomes. So I'm going to talk about some of these outcomes. Once again, there's a ton of stuff in this trial. I'm just hitting highlights. So outcomes. In the adrenaline group, 2.2% versus the placebo group of 1.9% had favorable neurological outcomes. So really, when we're looking at favorable neurologic outcomes, there was no difference. And this is 30-day survival. So, and you guys, when, you know, she says those numbers, if you don't look at stats or, or, you know, read this stuff, what we're looking at, every time you get a result, you're looking to see if that's statistically significant, meaning that it, could this be an error in the statistics or just something that happened by chance in statistics, or is this a true number, a true difference that you're getting? And when Steph's saying those, there's no real difference there. I know that the numbers that she said were different, but they're not statistically different. They're not, you know, a true difference in the result. Yeah, thank you for clarifying on that. So once again, when we are looking at end goals, we are looking at favorable neurologic outcomes, people going home to their family, you know, living living full life. Furthermore, in this 31% in the adrenaline group versus 17% in the placebo group had significant or severe neurological impairment. And they use an MRS score that's a little bit different than what we use here. Theirs is the modified Rankin um, scale, which is a little different, but pretty similar to how we do our neurological scoring um, post-cardiac arrest. So much greater chance in the adrenaline group of going home with severe neurological impairment. So once again, from these numbers, what we know is epi or adrenaline, however you want to call it, is good for restarting hearts, but not so great at getting neurological, favorable neurological outcomes. And I think we can think about that really from a flow standpoint. So if you think about what epinephrine is doing, right, it's causing this arterial vasoconstriction. So we're trying to bump up our, like I said, the, the diastolic pressure from the vasoconstriction. But if you think about that in the brain, that could cause a problem. So if you have vasoconstriction in the brain, you might not be perfusing it as well as you want to. So again, it's a trade-off here. We're, we're talking about our end map, our end pressure, but then also what is the perfusion pressure in the brain? And that might be a problem due to the epinephrine. So once again, just to kind of hammer that point home, also in this, in this paramedic two trial, patients that went home in the adrenaline group with severe disability were 21%. 
Patients that went home with severe disability in the no, the non-adrenaline group was 8.9%. So once again, significantly less, and they're going off that MRS. Rankin score. Rankin score. So things we know do work and work actually a little bit better. Well, <laughs> a little bit. Much, Steph, Steph's doing an understatement of the year. <laughs> a little bit better than epinephrine. What works be- a little a lot, better than epinephrine? A lot better, excuse me. So a lot better than epi. These are things that we know, and this is where I think that our attention really should start focusing on, and I um, alluded to this a little bit ago. We know that early defibrillation, 20 times more effective than adrenaline. We know that early recognition of cardiac arrest and a 911 call is 10 times more effective than epinephrine. And then early CPR, so CPR prior to EMS arrival is eight times more effective than giving epi. I mean, think about these numbers when she says that, you know, when she's saying eight times, it's 800% more helpful. It's a thousand percent better than epinephrine. So these are like significant differences in the treatment, meaning when you have, you know, what, what, what's going to get the most bang for your buck for sure, CPR, early defibrillation, all of those things that kind of don't require medicine, don't require paramedics, really. Right? Unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> they don't this require like ER. the last thing don't we worry, were they holding don't, on don't to. Don't require ER doctors either. <laughs> like holding on to the one last thing we could do to pin that life-saving button on us, but now they're taking that away. I don't know if this is like an a insider secret, but there have been times when there'd be like a cardiac arrest in the, in the hospital. And the ER doc, you know, back in the day before we had trauma designations, the ER doc would run up there to respond. And sometimes I would run up to the floor and they'd be trying to mess with this code card that had so much stuff. And, and my thought in my brain was like, man, if you guys just grab the AED and put that on, you'd be way better off right now than the four minutes it took me to run upstairs and still having this total craziness, you know, in the room without any defibrillation pads on, whereas a layperson in the public could grab that defibrillator off the wall, put it on the patient, and the defibrillator would shock them already. Sorry, that was just another digression. It's early. We're going to do it. All right, so we're going to extrapolate this data, all this, all these numbers that we've talked about so far, and we're going to just kind of put it into perspective for you. So if we took a 1,000 out-of-hospital cardiac arrests, that would result in an extra 250-ish cases of ROSC. So right now we're like, that looks good. But of those, that's going to then attribute to about 160 ICU stays. And then of those, you're going to get about eight extra survivors at 30 days. However, of those eight survivors that we're calling survivors, five of those are going home severely disabled. So out of a thousand cardiac arrests, which, you know, I know our agency doesn't run that many annually. That's a big number. And out of the thousand, we're only getting three that are going home to their family how they were prior to their event. So I want us to think about it. Is, you know, are those three worth the extra 150-ish ICU stays? Is it worth the five that go home that are going to need a lot of caretaking? You know, I think if you ask the, the, the families of the three out of the thousand, they would think that we should continue to do epi. I think if you ask the other five that, uh, you know, have family members that are now severely disabled, I'm not sure. I'm not sure, you know, what, this is a big ethics question, and I'm not sure what we're all, all going for with this, but is that, is that what we are, our desires are for, for outcomes? And I think that Steph hit it right there. This is, this is a, an ethics question, and it's actually a, a study of medicine, meaning when you look at how many patients you're treating and what your outcomes are and how many people you help with that benefit. This is a whole you know, area of study for 
statisticians and ethicists and to figure out whether we should be doing this stuff or not. And so when Steph raises this question on the podcast, she, she's not making a claim as to what, we th- what she thinks, I don't think. Because I think that it is, you know, one, it requires some math that we're not doing. Two, it requires some deep thought about your own personal preferences about life and things like that. And that can be different for different people. What we're looking at when you look at this, you do have to look at it from a system standpoint. And this is hard in medicine because I, I agree that like you want to fight for that patient, every patient you fight hard for it. And that, that is absolutely true. And I do fight hard, but there is a time when you're saying this is futile overall for the population. This raises that question. And I'm not giving you the answer here, but I'm just saying it raises the question. Questions that we have. I, I have not, even though I've been thinking about this for a while, I haven't come to a personal conclusion on this. I think once again, this raises that question of, could we do it better? Right? Is there a better way? And that's really now where we're going with this. So here's questions that this study really raised for me that I want you guys to think about. Is one milligram the right dose? Is the three to five minute interval the right interval? Should we look at different things, you know, different ways of administering Epi, maybe we're, maybe the five milligram boluses every three to five minutes you know, that were done in this study, maybe that isn't the right thing. Should we maybe be titrating infusions? I know I've been hearing talk about that so that you're getting kind of this lower dose consistent Epi throughout the cardiac arrest. And I think that even raising those questions, you know, since I've been doing this in the last 20 years, you know, we've done high dose Epi, We've done not high dose epi, and, and now we're looking at those numbers again. And so it does kind of vary depending on what the, the studies of the time show. And like everything else, this can change over time. But I do think that, that the questions that Steph's hitting on here are, are key is that I've been thinking about this because we're doing this podcast as well. And, and I listened to you talk the last time about this. You know, my personal take on this is I'm not ready to throw epi out the window. Like, I don't think epi is a terrible thing for resuscitation. I do think that we need to figure out how we need to deliver that epinephrine and, and how much epinephrine is the right amount of epinephrine. And, you know, my, my initial take at this is that I think we're giving a huge amount of epinephrine. We're probably giving way too much epinephrine up front and the bolus dose, you know, might not be the right option. But again, I don't have, if this is just me thinking out loud, I'm not saying this is any study and certainly don't go back to your agency and say, Dr. Sovendal said that we should just be giving low dose epi or, or whatever the case. This is all stuff that, you know, you can talk about with your medical director. Everyone's trying to figure this out, right? Yep. Yeah, and I think, it, you know, once again, I talked about backboards before, but this is kind of what makes me think of it now is, you know, we got this dose, the one milligram every three to five minutes from like 1906 from doctors who were doing, you know, testing dosages on puppies. Dogs. They had just yeah. asphyxiated. <laughs> so anyway, that's Crown Doyle. You guys can look at that those, later. Those are nice but, that Doyle gets home from work and his wife's like, how was your day? And oh he's like, gosh. it was great. I killed 17 dogs today. Anyways. Anyway. Um, so with that, just know that this, you know, this dose and interval has been around for a long time. So I think now we are saying just like we did backwards forever, just because we've been doing it that way forever doesn't mean it's the right way. So we are really reevaluating it. And the last thing, it, the last question it brought up for me too is, are we giving it an appropriate time frame? In this study, the average time to epi was 21 minutes. Now take into consideration that includes an average response time of six minutes. So I know we all think that we probably have a better time than that. But locally, ESO published a study that for at least the you know 950-ish large agencies that report to them, the average time to epi here in the United States was 18 minutes, which also included a six-minute 
response time. So we are not far off from what they were finding in their study. Individual agencies, you may be, you know, more aggressive with this and getting Epi on board sooner, which I do think, you know, probably helpful. Once again, there are some studies out there that did look at time to Epi, but their numbers were small. And so it's kind of hard to extrapolate that data. But with that said, maybe we can be a little bit better about getting our, our Epi on board sooner. So, you know, looking at dose, delivery methods, time of administration, all those things are questions that we have about how do we make Epi the most effective drug that it could potentially be maybe. Yep, absolutely. So what are some changes that we've seen locally here? Well, I know here in our systems, kind of our first step in this process was we are currently limiting our doses of Epi to three. So we are keeping it the same Uh, one milligram every three to five minutes, but we're stopping at three because once again, in the study, we know five was creating poor neurologic outcomes. So we said, let's let's bring it back to three and see if we fare any better. And I reached out to a few other providers to see, you know, where other people have landed on this. So one of the first people I had reached out to was Dr. Peter Antevi. Most of you guys probably know him from Hand Heavy. I wanted to see where their agency landed. And essentially where they landed is they ended up just taking epinephrine out of their VTAC, VFib arrest for both adults and pediatrics. So theirs is pretty extreme. I appreciate that they're yeah, willing extreme. to... They're like, they're like forget you, ACLS, American right. Heart Association. We're doing something different. That's definitely um, a bold move. But it is, you know, we talked about those studies, some of those studies, and, and I, I don't know the thought process behind it fully, but... You know, some of those studies showed that the people were having worsening, worse outcomes when they got epinephrine and they had V-fib or V-tac. V-tac, V-tac right. So if they had exactly. these kind of rhythms that you could treat with electricity, they were, they were worse off if you gave them epinephrine. Yep. So I think it's pretty fascinating that, that, you know, to see once again where other people are landing. So Dr. Te- Antevi and his agencies landed on just removing epinephrine altogether in VTAC, V-fib rest. I like to kind of compare that to the Red Bull vodka phenomenon, right? So in VTAC, Fib arrest, people give amiodarone and then they follow with epi, and it's kind of like a Red Bull vodka. Nice. And then they furthermore said that, you know, what they're looking also at moving to is possibly starting with one milligram for, once again, your asystole PEA rest, starting with one milligram of epi and then moving to 0.5 milligrams, but every 10 minutes. So, so changing that time. They're kind of changing. They're giving that one bolus up front. They're also then, you know, doing then half milligrams and lengthening that time. Once again, we're all trying to figure out what's, what's going to be best here. And I think the, the cool thing about this is that Dr. Antevi is a smart guy. And he's putting thoughts into this to try to figure out the system with the limited data we have. And, and that's cool because you're, you're trying to say, you know, I, I've said this before, we have a lot of data out there and we're trying to take all of it in and then extrapolate with the physiology we know what we think works the best. You know, that's really what they're doing here. And it, it is a little, you can listen to this and also say, well, there needs to be data behind it. I totally agree that we want data to support what we do. But we also need to say, hey, the data that I have is not, you know, fully conclusive. conclusive and so, yeah. you know, I just need to look for the next study. What's the next thing we want to try? The next big point that could, you know, help our patient population. So then lastly, I also reached out to Chief Hamill from Lee County. I've not even had the chance to meet Chief Hamill, but he has been a wealth of information for me. So they sent over what they're kind of doing and where they landed was 0.5 milligrams every five minutes for a total of two milligrams. So they're going to stop at four rounds of that. Shannon, I think you had mentioned that you kind of like that infusion thought process. Yeah, I think if I was leaning towards a change or 
saying I'm going to go against uh, the American Heart Association. I actually like the the infusion, meaning you, you, you create that epi drip that's, you know, low concentration and you just hang it during the resuscitation. So you just kind of have this low dose epi infusion. I would love to see a study that kind of looked at that versus, you know, regular dose epi or placebo. Anyway, that's hopefully didn't rattle your brain too much about epinephrine. I think it's, you know, at the end of this podcast, you could sit there and go, well, that didn't really help me that much at all because I don't really know what to do now with my epinephrine doses. And I think that that's true for all of us. We, you know, we're, we struggle a little bit with this data and, and trying to figure out what to do next. That's the whole point of what we're doing here though, right? You're always trying to get better. We're always trying to look for the new way to uh, improve our patient's outcome. And so great discussion and yeah, keep thinking about us. Send us a nasty gram if you totally disagree or send us a, you know, Hey, you want to, you want a fast juice calculation and kids card. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thanks for tuning in. Uh, we'll see you on the next podcast. See you guys. I'm Shannon Sovendahl, and that's our show. Thanks for tuning in to Match on a Fire, Medicine, and More. If you have any questions, shoot me an email at shannon at matchonafire.com. And if you're enjoying the show, head over to iTunes and leave us a review. Thanks. We appreciate you listening.